Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, as we read verses 8 through 10. Hear now the word of God. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, the, the dangers of division and strife in the church are very real. And so would you attune our ears to the various dangers that Paul addresses today? Would you make us sensitive and aware to not only the dangers, but also the resources that you give to us in the gospel? Would you bless us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we saw that Paul was very motivated, very focused on motivating our prayers by giving us a hunger to see God's mission in this world accomplished. And if you remember, his mission that that Paul spoke about was seeing people from every tribe and tongue and nation come to Jesus. And God has has chosen to allow us to play a role in that by even using our prayers for people in accomplishing that. And so Paul says, make sure, church, that you are praying for all people. Be praying for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Make sure that you have a hunger to see people from all over the world come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what God desires, and that's what we ought to also desire. Now, he he continues in that topic of prayer, and he moves through it, to a related issue of of men and women and how they should live together in unity in the church. Remember, he doesn't drop the issue of prayer, but now he's talking about not only what should we pray for, but who should be praying and what should they also be praying for. And so if he's now dealing with the issue of men and women in the church, you're going to notice this slow transition this week and uh, in two weeks when we come back to this text. But if you read the rest of chapter 2, of 1 Timothy, uh, there is a movement in logic that Paul is, is making. And our reading today stops at verse 10. But the argument goes something like this. Paul wants the church to be a place of prayer and unity. That's, that's how the truth that Timothy is supposed to be preaching is going to be adorned. It's going to be adorned by this unity, by this undividedness, by this uh, uh, lack of, of anger or, or one-upmanship in the church. And instead, he says, we should be defined not by how we dress, not by our differences, but by our love of Jesus and by our commitment to living as God's people. Those are the things that should adorn the church. Now, here's what's going to happen in two weeks. Matthew will be preaching next week. But in two weeks, when we come back to this text, we're going to be following Paul's logic. One of the ways that Paul seeks to avoid problems and division is by addressing the issue of women in the church and what God's design does and does not include for them. Because if we get these things wrong, then division is going to spread, division is going to increase. And so all of this serves an important purpose. The purpose is making sure the church doesn't become a hotbed of division and trouble. So if we do the things that Paul is talking about here in chapter 2, we're going to find this. 
God is preemptively doing heart work within the body of Christ to protect us from the vision. Um, that's sort of a chapter overview. That's sort of what chapter two is aiming at. That's what he's doing in the big picture. But for this morning, we're going to stop before we get to verse 11. Uh, we will save that for uh, the next reading. Uh, but today, I want you to notice what he does just in verses 8, 9, and 10. He addresses unity by pressing us toward peace between men and towards modesty between women. He really tackles these two specific issues. And then finally, he encourages both groups to live with godly attitudes. And so our three points today are, are peace, modesty, and godliness. We'll look at all three. Um, all of them are here. It, they are things that if we do not do, they are things that if they are absent in the church, uh, Paul is concerned that the church will become a hotbed of strife and trouble. And so he's heading those things off by addressing them in advance. And so the first step toward unity in the church that Paul mentions in our passage today is peace. And here's how he says it in verse 8. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. You know, it's interesting, I think, to uh, uh, what all of this really requires. We need to be proactive at pursuing peace. He's talking about being proactive and, and actively pursuing that unity that we're supposed to have. Um, understand this because uh, uh, I'm not a utopian. Paul's not a utopian. Uh, they don't live in sort of a dreamland where everyone's default heart uh, posture is peace, right? He understands that we are sinners. He knows that peace is actually not our default posture. Our default posture is war. Like there is something within us that is just ready for conflict. Um, just look at your own heart. When you get up in the morning before you've had your coffee, how ready are you really to deal with difficult things before you've had your coffee in the mornings? I'm not. Um, you know, that's, that's your default heart posture, right? Um, peace is something that has to be actively and considerately pursued, but it, it exists because God has made the conditions of peace possible. So notice this. The, the emphasis of this passage here is really on the, on the location Paul's speaking about, at least in this verse. The, the real idea is where are the people praying? I want, at least I want you to fixate on that, at least for a moment, because he says, I desire that ev in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands. Uh, in, in the Old Testament times, it was the temple where lifting up of hands in prayer took, pray, took place. Uh, even today, there's something special to the Jewish people. There's something localized uh, for the Jewish people about the location of the Temple Mount. They still go to the Temple Mount. They still go there. They still pray. They still uh, stick prayers that they've written in between the bricks that are remaining of the temple. Um, but, but see, Paul doesn't say, I want everyone to go to Jerusalem and pray. No, he, and he's saying this while Jerusalem is still standing. He says, I want men in every place to pray. Um, what used to be restricted to one people group and, and to one location is now for all people in all places to do. We saw this last week. This is sort of almost revisiting things that were brought up in the text, right? God makes peace between people happen because the men in every place can now pray together. Ephesian Gentiles and Ephesian Jews can stand shoulder to shoulder as one body, all worshiping Jesus, all calling on the Lord together. This is a remarkable thing that God has done in, in making it possible for Gentiles and Jews to worship alongside of each other. You do not have two people with greater animosity and difference in all the world than Jews and Gentiles. For a Jewish person, it was them and everybody else. 
And so anybody else they're standing next to really is a work of God. And, and so you have this idea, though, the, the anger and the quarreling that could happen between those people groups is dealt with by God in the gospel, right? God has taken the initiative and, and he's dealt with the anger. He's dealt with the quarreling of God's people. That doesn't mean the church doesn't have anger and quarreling. Uh, one thing we've learned in 2020 and 2021 is that the church is a place that anger and quarreling happens. But it does mean that it should, we shouldn't have anger and quarreling. That does actually mean that that's the thing that, that ought to define us. That is actually should be our posture as the church, as those who are in Jesus. See, the, the biggest differences that could possibly exist are the difference between Jews and Gentiles, and those have been torn down. And if those have been torn down, what other walls could possibly remain? What bigger differences could there possibly be that are worth dividing the church over? And Paul says, if God can take care of the biggest differences possible, then there are no limits to the sort of peace that he can bring between people. But notice how he ties prayer into this, right? He doesn't just speak abstractly about peace. He actually makes prayer an integral part of achieving this, right? And so one thing I want you to see and I want you to know is that prayer does two things. It gives us a motivator for peace and it gives us an instrument of peace. Because when we pray, we're expressing our corporate need. We're expressing our, our corporate unity. By the way, corporate just means physical. It just means all together. That just means all of us together. And so when we pray, we're also seeing the thing that we need to keep working toward. We're actually seeing the thing that should also be our goal. Because as we pray as one, that's actually the thing that we want. So we're doing the thing that's meant to send us that direction. And it's actually the thing that makes it happen as well. We're seeing our goal and we're seeing the way of reaching that goal all happen together. So we aspire to unity so that we can be praying people. And we are praying people so that we can have unity. Those things go together. So Paul says, the church should be united in Christ. He says, let's not quarrel. Let's not be angry. Jesus Christ has torn down our differences to the ground so that they look small in comparison to knowing God through Christ. When Paul addresses Christians living and praying together without quarreling, he's pointing at one of the most obvious places where divisions can fester. They can fester in our personal interactions. And, and in the ways that we think about each other in our hearts. Uh, think about the biggest problems that you've seen, the biggest problems you've, you've heard of in churches. Maybe in church history, we think that it was really doctrinal error that caused the most conflict in churches. But you should think more close to home. Think of the church conflicts you've observed, the church conflicts you've heard about. Nearly always, it's not a doctrinal problem. Uh, or a doctrinal disagreement that hurts people so much, it's usually clashing personalities. Um, how we live in the aftermath of disagreement, how we feel about each other afterwards can end up destroying or uniting a church. Um, I've heard stories of church splits, church divisions, church conflict. The longer you're a pastor, the more friends you make who are pastors, the more stories you hear. And, uh, and here's the common element all of them seem to have in common. Someone sins, Someone responds to that sin, usually sinfully. Things escalate, and before you know it, everybody's got a sin that they're responding to in a sinful way, and then you have yourself a whirlwind, and you have a lot of hurt people who find themselves scratching their heads, wondering, how did things get to this point? And the sin and the hurt can go so deep, everyone even wonders how all of this 
conflict even started in the first place. It's usually personal differences and arguments. Uh, Quarreling, as Paul calls it, that's the word he uses here. It's quarreling that can do the most damage to a church. Um, As I say, the biggest uh, problems, doctrine is important. Doctrine gives the bedrock of the church, uh, the thing that everybody is uh, foundationally agreed upon, but it's the personalities that can be so destructive. And so do you ever consider this, though, that God says, I want to address this. I want to build this church up. And what's the instrument that he uses? He's going to talk about the importance of the word, the preaching of the word. Uh, He's going to talk about these things in a bit. But do you ever consider that prayer is an incredible tool that God has given to the church to address these problems? There is something about saying, let's stop and let's pray that just has this stabilizing and calming effect. There is something about it. Um, I don't think the session members will mind me sharing this. 2020 is ancient history, right? You can share ancient history. Uh, Easiest year on record, we all know that. Um, 2020 was actually not a very easy year for churches or, or sessions. There was an incredible amount of stress and pressure on every session in every church in the entire United States. Well, um, there was one such session meeting that I was sitting in on, and it became incredibly tense, and feelings were high, and it just came this moment when I thought things couldn't get any more stressful, and at just that moment, one of the elders said, we need to pray. Let's pray, and we just stopped. The conversation stopped, and it was like the Lord came back into the room It was like he came into the room and said, I desire that these men should lift up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Uh, I believe every man in the room would testify the very same thing. The Lord used that time of prayer to bring peace, to bring reconciliation. Uh, He used prayer to accomplish it. Prayer was the goal. It, It showed the unity we're supposed to have, and it gave us the means to actually have that unity and to encourage it and to experience it. I think it is incredibly insightful that Paul pokes at this issue here, and he actually distinguishes between one group that needs to hear this, which is men, and then he talks to women in the next point. And I think there's a reason why he pokes at the men here. Uh, I think that Paul is right, that men especially can be prone to fiery passion. We can sometimes convince ourselves every issue is a hill worth dying on, no matter the cost, and, and we're often wrong about that. And those sorts of attitudes can ruin us. They can harm the church. They can be self-destructive. And what Paul does is he turns a light on this problem and he says, work for peace. Work for peace. He says, be aware of your own tendency toward anger, your own tendency to quarrel. Uh, He says, prayer is part of the solution, but it's also the motivation. Do Do you want to pray together in peace? Speak and make peace. Do you want to have peace? Then he says, pray. Cry out to God with the person that you need to have peace with. And at the very, very, very least, pray for them. Make prayer a part of how we pursue peace together. That's a a word for all of us. It's, It's especially a word for the men. Paul says, rather than anger, rather than quarreling, pray. It's one of the steps toward unity that he wants the church to exercise. Now, the second we come to this issue of, of modesty. 
Uh, I've been reading Carl Truman's uh, newish book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. One of the things he talks about in that book, and, and I got to this reading after I had already prepared this message, but one of the things he talks about is the fact that modesty is not just something that's, that's mocked in the world, but it, it's, it's a conversation that isn't even had. If people want to talk about what kind of dress is modest, what kind of clothing is modest, Modern people aren't even having that conversation. Um, what's happening is you've got some people who think modesty is important, and then you have all the people over there on the other side who think that it's not at all important and don't even want to have the conversation. And that's because modern society has torn down the idea of modesty because it's torn down the idea that human beings are to save anything for someone else to see in their life. Right? There's, no, there's nothing that you need to only share with a husband or a wife because the culture has basically told us that there's nothing that should be kept uh, from the rest of the world. Let's just show everybody everything we have. That's the modern, that's the modern moment that we live in. And yet the, the issue is actually bigger than physical modesty. It's actually a bigger issue than just whether someone is dressing in a seductive way. I want you to see this. Um, Paul is giving these instructions... He gives them explicitly to the women of the church. He says that women can do something to actively address a potential cause of disunity. Just as the men and their fiery passions can create problems in the church, it's also something that women need to be aware of. What can they do that might cause disunity in the church? And so he addresses that in, in verses 9 to 10. He says, Likewise also, women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And it seem, might, might seem like a left turn in Paul's logic here. You know, what's happening here, though, is not a left turn. It's not like Paul is just thinking, okay, Timothy, here's one thing and here's another thing and here's another thing. And, and I'm just going to talk about random stuff in the church. It's actually not what's going on here. What Paul is showing us is this. Men and women all have a role to play in turning down the temperature in the room, is what he's saying. Um, all of us need to recognize we have a personal, relational role to play in church conflict, right? Men can cause arguments and fights. Now, so can women as well. I mean, we, we all know that all of us are capable of these things. But he decides, I'm going to explicitly address these two groups, and I'm going to explicitly make sure that they know their role. And, then, and so then he turns to the women. And, and it's not that women don't fight. It's not that women can't fight. But Paul seems concerned about something that he may have seen in other churches before, something in all of his travels and all of his church planting that needs to be addressed, and Timothy needs to know about this. And that is this issue of, of modesty. When Paul talks about modesty, he's... He's addressing a pain point for the church. Um, if you wanted to, to, to paint it with a broad brush, think of it like this. One-upmanship, competition, and worldly values. All three of those things are bound up in this issue of, of modesty. Because he's saying that, that when women dress without modesty, when they dress without self-control, without self-respect, they are, in a sense, flaunting something, right? They're either flaunting their physique or they're flaunting their money. And they're flaunting their sense of style. Uh, Tom Schreiner says, says that, in, 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 that in this place, Paul is prohibiting not only extravagant and ostentatious adornment, but also clothing that is seductive and enticing. Um, so the, the, the modesty runs in two directions here. 
Um, this doesn't mean that it's actually a, a sin to braid your hair. It doesn't mean if you own any gold that you're, you're sinning. Uh, it does mean that these things should not be what you are about, what you are pursuing, that you should be careful in how you use your clothing, how you should use the uh, amount of focus and emphasis that you put on your physical appearance. He says, women, make sure that you are pursuing godliness, which we'll get to in the next point. He says, make sure that is your focus. That's the thing you're known for. That's the thing that, that, de- that defines you, your pursuit of God, your pursuit of godliness. Let that be what you are about and what people think of when they think of you. Um, I won't dare to give specifics of what uh, might be seductive or ostentatious. The interesting thing is that does vary from culture to culture. Uh, in the Jewish culture, just showing your, your hairline would have been seductive. Uh, we're not there at all now. Um, but at least consider this. The way we dress, the way we present ourselves should not convey any sense of superiority, right? vanity, uh, excess, waste, they have a way of generating trouble. Now, you ladies know how you guys talk about how other women dress. Sometimes I've listened in on conversations of women talking about how other women dress. Um, so here's the thing. Women notice. Women notice clothing. Women notice the way other people are dressing. They also, in their heads, say things like, I can guess how much she spent on that. Um, those sort of, of thoughts, those sorts of ideas, uh, expressions of, of vanity or excess. The women notice these things, things that men often don't. Um, there, are, there are some things that women can do that will actually promote trouble or spark fights with other women in the church. And sometimes those can spill over and suddenly they can become fights between the men as well. Um, 1 Peter 3 says almost the same thing Paul says here. He's talking about how women should adorn themselves, uh, but he says a little more than Paul does. And and I think Paul would agree with every one of Peter's words here. Um, Well, for good reason. They're both inspired writers of scripture, so they're friendly with one another. Um, (laughs) But I still think that Paul would look at what Peter says here and go, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, uh, I like that. Here's what he says. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. With imperishable beauty, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So, so you have these two very different mentalities that, that Paul and, and Peter are contending with. You have the one mentality of, of a woman who lives among others, and she puts a premium on making sure that other men and other women notice her and, and observe her and, and are impressed by her, right? Maybe, maybe she wants them to notice the money that she spends her clothes on, or maybe she's, she wants people to notice her, her body, or maybe she doesn't care what anybody thinks, too. Uh, back before I abandoned the horrible place, horrible place called Facebook, you would see sort of the, the modesty wars going on uh, on the internet between moms. And, uh, you know, you could just tell, like, there are some moms and there are some young women who just, they don't think anybody should care what they're wearing. And they think that it is everybody else's problem to deal with however they're dressed. And then you have way on the other side, you know, those who say, you know, what I would prefer is a full body suit that is just basically Pastor Parker's outfit every Sunday. Just everybody wear that. You know, you kind of got all the different, you know, there's quite a range there. Um, 
And, but but the, the attitude that, that disturbed me the most was seeing women who profess faith in Christ saying, everybody else needs to deal with how I decide to dress. And not at all, like any sense at all, that maybe I have some responsibility for other people around me and whether there's conflict because of how I choose to dress. Um, it's just everybody else's problem. I have no role to play in this, that sort of attitude. And, and Paul is really, really denying that here. He's actually saying, no, all of these are problematic attitudes for a Christian to have, either thinking that it's everyone else's problem or thinking that no one else should care at all, or maybe just not caring what the impact of what she's doing is. But then you have this other attitude Paul and Peter are pushing the women of the church toward, the positive attitude. Where they're saying, I, I know that the woman basically could say, look, I know that I could do more. I know that I could show more. I know that I could flaunt more. I know that I could spend more. And yet I'm going to love the body of Christ. I'm going to live with modesty. I'm not, in, I'm not going to indulge. I'm going to live with restraint for the sake of the peace of the church. Right? You set aside your rights and privileges. It's a picture of Jesus. Jesus could have done so many things in his earthly ministry. He chose not to. He set aside his divine rights. And in a sense, he's asking all of us to do those things as well. Just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should. It doesn't mean that it's loving for the sake of the peace of the church. So the first attitude is, is immature. It's self-indulgent, the sort of attitude that says, why shouldn't I do what I want? Why shouldn't I do what makes me feel good? You can't prove that it's a sin to do this specific thing or to dress this certain way exactly. And you know that these rules change from society to society. So since I can, and since you can't give me a concrete definition of what modesty looks like, I'm going to do whatever I want. Right? That's, that's the immature, please grow up Christian attitude. And then the second attitude is the attitude of Jesus, right? He sits aside his rights. He sits aside the things he could do. And he does it for a specific reason, to be a blessing to the church. And that's the second thing that, that Paul is encouraging his people toward. He's encouraging people toward modesty and self-control and, and respectfulness. Now, just as an aside, I was talking to somebody about this. I don't remember who. And they said, well, you should also talk to men about the importance of modesty. And all I can think is... I do not know what a modest man looks like, but please you know, hold back on the rings and the Speedos. <laughs> None of those. You get, one, you get a wedding ring, no, nothing else, all right? <laughs> I feel like that's not controversial to say. Um, the third point Paul mentions, uh, there might be an elders meeting afterwards. No more... <laughs> The third point that Paul mentions, though, toward the work of building unity in the church is this positive flip side. You know, the last two negative statements Paul made, right? He says, he says don't fight and don't flaunt. That's sort of the last two points. But then, then he's pressing us towards something. It's, I, I love this about the biblical writers. One of the things that uh, William Blake wrote a poem, and I'm going to butcher it, so I'm not going to tell you the, all the lines of the poems, but, but William Blake has this poem where he talks about this garden over which is written a sign that says, Thou shalt not. And he's talking about the church, and he's criticizing the church, and he says, The church is a place where all we hear is, Thou shalt not. What is the church about, he says. William Blake, you know, this is in the... 17, 1800s, and William Blake is saying, the church is a place where we're denied what really makes us happy. And 
One of the things I like to notice in the New Testament is how much, yes, there is a thou shalt not. There is something that God is saying, don't do this. But then he's always pushing us toward the good thing. And this is oftentimes what the world doesn't see and they don't hear when they see thou shalt not. God is actually telling us what life is supposed to be like, what we're supposed to be moving toward, what we are supposed to be embracing. And specifically here, he says, it's godliness. Paul says, men, pray together without anger and quarreling. Women, don't let relational rot set in by your immodesty or by bragging or by any sort of division that might grow up between you all. But, but now he says, what should God's people be adorned with? Paul says, you shouldn't be adorned with ex- this external stuff, this stuff that's all about appearances. He says, instead, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works? So, so he's constructive here. He's positive here. Paul is showing us what the alternative to anger and quarreling and, and immodesty and strife is. If we're going to avoid those things, then what are we supposed to go after? He says, the alternative is not inactivity. The alternative is not just sitting on our hands. Instead, he says it's a life of being positively holy, where we do good works. He's he's saying, you were made for something. You were not just made to avoid something. You were not just made to be against something. You were made to glorify God with your life, not just avoid sin. Sin avoidance is not the goal of the Christian life. This third point is is obviously building a great deal off of the second, so it's written towards women, but it is a reminder, uh, a wonderful reminder, that we should all be known for something. We should not just be known for what we are against. We should be known for what we are for, something that, that we will dedicate ourselves to, something that we pour our energy into, our heart and soul into. Think about the, the amount of effort that we put into our appearance. Um, Many people spend a lot of time, a lot of money on looking the best they can. Um, Some people now go to plastic surgeons so they can have an Instagram-worthy face. Uh, Thousands of dollars in surgery and makeup and hair care and all these other things related to their appearance. And, And yet just imagine if people took the days and weeks uh, and the amount of finances that they put into those things. Imagine if they put those resources into godly things, into godliness and good works. Imagine the, the, the benefit and the blessing you could actually be to the world. Um, it doesn't take much imagination. Will we be known for being well-dressed and, and dapper? Will we strive after superficial things? Well, Paul gives us the thing that we ought to be known for. The word he uses actually for being known for something is adorned here. He says the thing that ought to adorn us, the thing that ought to hang upon us, the thing that ought to to decorate us. He says we ought to pursue godliness, not superficialities. He says the way that we deal with with conflict, the way we present ourselves, all of these things, they they don't just promote or tear down the peace of the church, but they say something about what God means to us. What is most important to us? Is God worthy of your dedication? Is God worthy of your wholehearted obedience? Or is he a side project? Is God just this side project that we pull out on Sunday mornings and give lip service to? Or is our whole life centered around the creator? Is is our whole life centered around around the redeemer of God's people? Or are we singularly unimpressed with who he is? 
Are we more interested in performing for the people around us? Or is God truly the center of our life? Is he truly the focus of our lives? You know, however we, we answer these questions, that's going to adorn us. It's going to adorn the gospel. And it's going to teach others what those closest to God actually think of him. You know, one of the things that you learn sort of as a pastor is you listen to people. You want to make sure that you take people seriously. But a criticism from somebody that you don't know or that doesn't know you is one thing. Uh, a criticism from someone who truly knows you and is truly close to you is something else. And, and that actually means you listen more carefully when you hear a criticism from someone close that knows you well. But, but what does it say to the world if we Christians, those who are supposed to be closest to God, are not impressed with him? What does it say when we, the people who, who week in, week out, spend time with him, learn more about him, who are supposed to be indwelt by his spirit, if the idea of God really still gets sort of put on the back burner for us? What does that say about the Lord? Um, however we answer those questions, that's going to adorn us. It's going to adorn the gospel. Um, what is really discouraging is those when, who, those, when those who profess faith in God and the things of God are not captivated by him. And we have to admit that oftentimes we are not as captivated by God as we ought to be. But what is Paul doing? He's pushing us toward Jesus. He's pushing us toward godliness. He's pushing us towards the Lord. He's saying, your life is going to be about something. Everybody makes something the center of their life. Either, either they make it themselves or they're going to make it God. Or they're going to make something else in their life God, and that thing is eventually going to let, the, let them down. And so he says, God is the center. Amen. And, and it's, it's, this is something, by the way, that we can't blame on the unbelieving world. We don't get to look at the unbelieving world and go, well, it's their fault that I don't love God more. No, this is, judgment begins at the house of God. Judgment begins with us. We are responsible for ourselves. We can't lay that at the unbelieving world's doorstep. It belongs to us. We own it. If we do not love God, if we aren't devoted to the Lord the way that we know we ought to be, that's us. That's on us. Um, St. Jerome was talking about this passage today. He was talking about this idea of modesty. He's talking about this idea of prayer, and he ties these things together. I'm going to give this quote from Jerome. He says, Whenever we lift up pure hands in prayer, without diverting distractions or contentions, we are playing to the Lord with a ten-stringed instrument. We play as the psalmist wrote with a ten-stringed instrument and lyre with melody upon the harp. Our body and soul, our harp, are all in harmony, all their strings in tune. In other words, the way we live, the way that we act, actually ought to match what's going on in our hearts. Um, we, are, we as a church are an instrument. We are each a string in the hands of God. And while God has made us what we are, we should be striving for godliness so that we will all play in tune together. So that each of our lives, as the string of our life is plucked, God's, God and the world hear something beautiful. Amen. What part can you play in preaching with your life? God's symphony of unity and love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it would be so easy for us to think of ourselves, to be drawn into ourselves, and to care whether or not we are getting our own way.
yet you teach us a different way that requires us not to indulge ourselves, whether that is anger or whether that's indulgent dress. Whatever it might be, Lord, you call us to something better. You call us to a unity that is unbroken by shallow self-promotion or indulging in anger or quarreling. Oh God, you've taught us a better way. Help us to live it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.